Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I'd like for all of you that have King James versions of the Bible to open to Hebrews chapter 11 and prepare to read here in a little bit. I'm continuing our study of separation this morning and uh, just thinking a little bit about the last message. We talked about some big, some big things. The title of the message was The Cosmic Battle. We talked about the two kingdoms. We talked about how truth is separate from what is false and, and how good is separate from evil. And uh, as, as I think about the subject of separation, there's a lot of different avenues that you have to cover to try to, try to bring things together. And so we're going to shift a little bit this morning. We're going to be looking more at the individual. And it's going to be kind of a framework for the next several lessons beginning to uh, look at how the individual, the Christian, is separate in the world. First of all, I'd like for us to think about something a little bit, partly about how we view ourselves in the world. So if you have a, if you have a screwdriver, and this is maybe a little bit more of a man's illustration, and you're wanting to, to tighten up a screw that's in a place where you can't quite reach, and you take that screwdriver and you put it into that slot or whatever it is, and you try to, to get the screwdriver attached to the head of the screw, and, and eventually you, you feel that head of the screw fall into the slot, and you know that you can now turn the screwdriver and tighten up the screw. And you said, I, I feel it. Well, you don't really feel it. You're, you're, the screwdriver is, is in there. It's the one that's doing the work. But we think about, we think about objects in the world, we think about things in the world as, as either a tool or an obstacle. We don't think about them so much as a thing themselves, but rather as either it's a tool that helps me out or it's something that's getting, that's getting in my way. Another way you could think about that is if you're driving a vehicle to go somewhere, uh, you, the vehicle that you're in is a tool. It's, it's valuable to you because it's getting you where you want to go. But all the other vehicles are obstacles because they're in the way. And if somebody runs their vehicle into your vehicle, you say, he hit me, as if there's person-to-person -person contact. And so we think, about, we think about the things, the tools that we have, we think about them as ours. We take ownership of those things immediately, you know, just in the way we think about them and the way we talk. But we also do that socially as well. We, we extend ourselves out into, this is my family. Um, this is who I am. This is uh, these people who are around me are who I am. We do that with, we do it with groups. Um, and and we, we try to express ourselves as part of the group. Good, good illustration of that would be a sports fan. So a sports fan might buy the ball cap or the jersey that has a team logo on it. And um, that's a way of them expressing their, their unity or their connectedness with the team. So then they're watching a close game on TV and, and they score a point and they get up off the couch and go, yay! Even though the game is hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away, and they're not 
connected to it really at all in any physical way. It's just a, something that they identify themselves with. It's a group that they identify themselves with. Another way that this happens is patriotism, which isn't just a preference of a country. Patriotism is an extension of who we are. It's, it's thinking about ourselves as part of a country, as part of a group of people who make up a country. It's our country. It's who we are. It's our identity. And people will die for their country because their identity, their beliefs, their, their who they are is linked to that group of people, is linked to that country. And it's how, this, this is kind of the, some, of the, some of the way that we place ourselves in the world. And it makes up the identity of who we are. And that's why identity is so important. So who are you? And when you answer that question, you might say, well, I am, and you give your name, but who you are is a lot broader than just your name. Who you are makes up, is, is made up of your family and your, your larger group of people that you identify with. So uh, those of you who have King James Bibles, if you could read verses chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These... Thank you. Did you see the amount, did you hear the amount of times that there was reference a country in or a city, a place of identification in that passage? There were several places of identification in reference to the country. Now, I gave you homework assignment. Those are part of the regularly part of the congregation here, to read Genesis 3 and Romans 6. Can somebody tell me what Genesis 3 is about, primarily? The fall. The fall of man. How about Romans 6? Thank you. So Paul kind of lays out the new birth in Romans chapter 6. The identity of God's people. I have two goals with this message. Uh, the first one is to kind of lay out a spectrum of, of the human condition. And then the second one is to, to specify markers of God's people, who God's people are. So I guess we need to start with Adam and Eve. That was the beginning of human experience. And we're going to touch on a few things as we go through this.
And there are things that are going to come up in about mostly in the next four lessons or the next four messages. But um, we're going to start with Adam and Eve. So in the garden, Adam and Eve experienced fulfillment through God's design. So God created a world that was good. He created Adam and Eve to be good. And their experience there in the garden was fulfilling. Maybe another word you could use would be meaningful. But fulfillment in the human experience is not static. It's not thinking about... It's, it's not just a condition of pleasure where I am doing nothing and I feel good. Fulfillment in the human experience is more than that. Adam and Eve had the capacity to learn about God, to learn about each other, and to learn about creation. And God gave them responsibilities in the garden to be actively doing things. And he walked with them and spoke with them in the garden. And God, but God placed desires in Adam and Eve that would prompt them towards this kind of, of interaction with the world and with development, their development. So if we think about some of the things that Adam and Eve would have desired in the garden, well, they would have desired food. So apparently they experienced hunger, at least at some level. There was food available for them. But God had given them what they needed to eat, and they had this desire for food. Um, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had had knowledge, but they obviously desired knowledge because we see that desire coming up in Satan's temptation. He tempted Eve with a desire for knowledge. God gave them an identity. He gave Adam a name. Adam gave Eve a name. So there was a desire to have identity. There was a desire for companionship because Adam looked through the animals and he couldn't find a companion in the animals. And God made a companion, a suitable companion for him in making Eve. So these were things that God had desires that God had placed in them. As we think about the human experience, as you look at the human experience and as you read the Word of God, you can find that God has made a provision for our human desires in His Word if we follow His pattern. There's also the possibility of going outside of those desires. But God had something deeper than just the satisfaction of our desires in mind when He created us. He didn't create us just to be, just to have our desires satisfied. So he, he, that's, that's what I mean by, by it not being static. When our desires are satisfied, when we've eaten what we need to eat, life is not fulfilled simply by eating. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone. Filling our stomach is not fulfilling our life. We're made for more than that. But that desire exists. Real satisfaction comes through developing and through growing, through us growing and developing ourselves as people. 
and finding meaning in doing that. And our desires are placed in us to be a driver to help us to move towards that growth. So you stop and think about it. If everything was perfect in the garden, how could, how could Satan tempt Eve with anything? Everything was just right, which it was good. It was very good. He tempted her through her, de through her desires. So what was his temptation? His temptation said, there's something more. There's knowledge beyond what God has shown you that you can have if you eat this fruit. And so he tempted her through her desire. <clears throat> but it was a lie. He said, you won't die, but you'll be smarter. We'll maybe come back to this idea of the fact that it was a lie in a little bit. They already had life. They already had the things that they needed to meet their desires. So all he could do was try to convince them that there was more than what, there was more out there than what God was offering them, what God was giving them. Beyond the fruit was something better. And that primarily was centered around knowledge. So we look in our Sunday school lesson this morning. It talks about the, it talked about the knowledge of God there in Colossians that we've been strengthened and just following that idea of, of the knowledge of God, that we'd be filled with the knowledge of God, that we'd be strengthened with might by His, uh, by His power. And um, Satan's temptation was in relation to knowledge. Here. So why did Eve fall? Or what was her pursuit? So her pursuit was to gain more life. To gain something more from life than what she had. She had the expectation that, there, that she could grow, that she could become more than what she was. And in her response, in her her looking at the fruit after she, after Satan tempted her, she said she saw that it was good for food and it was desirable to make one wise, and so she ate the fruit. And so you see in that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. She saw it was good. She wanted the taste, and she wanted to be wise. So lust is the gratification of desires outside of God's plan. The desires themselves aren't the problem. So we try to, to gratify those desires outside of how God has designed for us to gratify or for them to be fulfilled. So what kind of life were Adam and Eve trying to gain by eating the fruit? What was a life that was, that was focused on themselves? It was a life that they could be more than what God had offered them. 
before that, before the fall, everything about life, the universe to Adam and Eve before the fall was God-centered. God was the center of everything to them. And so, because of that, life transcended. Their life was transcended by something higher than their individual self, than their individual being. But sin was a choice to make himself the focal point. And so, man became self-focused. And man's actions were centered around preserving and pleasing his own existence, his physical existence, his personal being, his flesh, his mortal life, his mortal body. He lost something transcendent, and so he lost his spiritual connection with God. And his God-centered worldview. So if you look at the first couple chapters of Genesis, you see that after the fall, you have Adam and Eve being driven from the garden. Then you have the story of Cain and Abel. And you have Cain killing Abel. And you have this progression of life. In a couple generations, you have Lamech, who said that if Cain was going to be avenged, if he was killed, then, his, then Lamech would be avenged seven times. And then you get down to Genesis chapter 6. But first of all, I want to read something about... So I talked about a little bit about the idea of the flesh, of man pleasing his, his, himself and his fleshly existence. And I want to read to you the deeds of the flesh from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are, man, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you have this list of things, and this list of things is a list of of things that men do when they are when their lives are centered around themselves, they are the when the when the New Testament talks about a life in the flesh, it's talking about a life that's centered around itself, and is is living to preserve and fulfill itself, its own being. It's self-centered. To move back now to Genesis chapter six. And read verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so you have this, this decline from Adam and Eve, from the state of perfection that Adam and Eve were living in, in the garden. You have this decline to where the, the thoughts and the intents the imaginations of the hearts of men and women were evil continually. And it's because man was living in a way that was guided by his own self-centered perspective about life. 
And Ephesians chapter 2 says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I'm going to stop and pick up on that idea of nature there just a little bit. Your nature is the essence of who you are. Nature is, is different from I don't know exactly how to say this. Nature, nature is different from individual action. Individual action is the things that you do. Nature is the core of who you are. We were by nature, the core of who we were before we came to Christ, the core of who we were was children of wrath. And uh, Brother Joe brought up um, the idea of of who do we believe that, that the blood of Jesus Christ can save, that the, the gospel can reach? And he mentioned, you know, do we, do we look at people that are, you know, maybe have covered their bodies with, say, tattoos or something like that? Do we look at those people and, and do we believe that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ can save people like that? And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about the fact that I have tattoos. Tattoos on my mind from living a life as a child of wrath. By nature, a child of wrath. And I believe that Jesus Christ can save me. And how much more are the tattoos of the mind detrimental than the tattoos on the skin? And I'm not saying that tattoos on the skin are the right thing to do. I'm just simply saying that we all have tattoos. We were all, by nature, the children of wrath. And that nature took us away from God. And so, where did separation begin? Well, separation doesn't begin, didn't begin when people became separate from the world unto God. Separation began when people were separated from God to the world. Separation began at the fall. When we left the state that God created us to live in, the way that He designed us, things are not now as they were meant to be. They aren't how God created them. Because the fall broke us away from God. It separated us from God. And we've been in a state of decline and degeneration since then. But Satan is still using that same lie today. And he's saying, things would be better if you wouldn't take God's way. Things are better if you don't take God's way. Just try it and see. You won't die. You'll get smarter. But it's self-centered. It will always be self-centered. And instead of bringing life It brings death. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, that's death, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
So what is the world that the Christian is to be separate from? We talk about the Christian being separate from the world. What is that world? That world is the system that is driven by man's pursuit of fulfillment outside of God. Humanity is being driven to fulfill their lusts outside of God. Their lust for power, their lust for um, pleasure. And the Christian is called to be separate from that world. And if we want to come back to God, we are going to have to be separate from that world and to be rejoined to Him. Salvation is a journey back to Eden. It's a journey to finding fulfillment in God's design. It's a journey to finding open communication with our Creator. All things that we lost in the fall have been moving away from. But we want to look deeper than just the journey. And we want to look at the marks of the people, the, the specific markers of pe the people who are on that journey. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews chapter 11. Because right after God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth there in Hebrews chapter 6, he saw, I mean, sorry, in Genesis chapter 6, he saw a man who walked with him. And that man was Noah. And it says in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not, seen as, not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I'll tell you what, you study that verse a little bit. That verse is loaded with information about what it means to be a person of faith. There's a specific thing that I want to pull out of that verse. Being warned of God of things not yet seen. Noah was given a vision by God of something that was going to happen in the future. Noah was warned by God and by taking heed to that warning, by preparing an ark, he preserved his family in a, in a time period when the wickedness of man was only evil continually. We're talking about faith. A hero of faith, Noah, he received a vision from God. So one of the markers of the people who, of God's people is that they have a vision about things not seen as yet. God has given them a vision. Now let's move on to verse 8. Another hero of faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham received a message from God. And the message that he received from God was, leave where you are and go somewhere. And Abraham went. He obeyed. The second thing 
that I want to pick us want us to pick up on is that he followed God's direction. God gave him a direction. So Noah had a vision. He followed that vision. Abraham received direction. He followed that direction. Now move on to verse 25. Actually, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses chose to identify with God's people. He chose to identify with God's people over the enjoyment of the pleasure of sin. Sin has pleasure. Moses chose intentionally to leave that behind and to identify with the people of God. What's the commonality of these three men? There in Hebrews chapter 11. Each verse starts by faith. They were men of faith. The commonality is faith. Faith in God. But the thing that I want to get to hone in on in thinking about this thing of, of vision, direction, and choosing identity choosing to identify is that biblical faith is intentional. Those people did not perform those things because they had to or because a door was left open. They did those things because they chose to. They heard from God. They walked with God. They heard from God and they said, we're going to do this. We choose to do this. Biblical faith is intentional. It responds intentionally. I just want to go over these three things again. Vision. They walked with God searching for a, and they walked with God and searched for a message and received a message about the future. They got direction from God and they responded to that direction. They chose to align themselves with people who were obedient to God. If you're going to be one of God's people, you're going to be a person of faith. Faith that's intentional. And what God, when God speaks to you, you're going to respond. All right, let's move on to another aspect. And this one is from the story of David and Goliath. So many of you know that story. This giant Philistine came out against the armies of Israel and challenged them to a, to a battle. And... In challenging them to the battle, to a battle, he said, you know, pick one of your men and he can come and fight me and whoever wins, that's going to determine the conflict between us. If I win, you'll be our servants. If he wins, we'll be your servants. And the men of Israel looked at this big warrior, huge warrior, probably half again their height, and said, we don't want to do that. They were afraid. And... David had been anointed by God. 
to be the next king of Israel. He had a relationship with God. He came to the camp to see his brothers. And Goliath came out there and, and proposed his challenge. And David said, I'll go and, and take this challenge. And so he took his shepherd's sling and some stones and he went and hit the giant on the head and knocked him unconscious and went up and cut off his head. But here's the question that I have for you. Why was David so much more ready to go to that battle than the rest of the Israelite men? Here's what he said to Goliath. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. David knew two things. He knew who he was, and he knew which side he was on. David had an identity with God. David knew who God was, and he knew who he was and which side he was on. And part of this thing of our identity as Christian people, that's why it is so key, it's why identity is so key to our victory. Because when we know who we are and we know which side we're on, then God is with us and He walks with us. And the enemy comes against us. The enemy of our souls. And we know which side we're on. And we say, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts because we know who we are and we know which side we're on. Now, looking at verse 27, I think I already read that. It's talking about Moses. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses had all this opportunity in Egypt. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have been a very wealthy man, probably enjoyed all the pleasures that the world had to offer at that point. And this verse says that he left all that not because of fear of the king, but because he wanted to see him that was invisible. Or he was seeing him who was invisible. It says, as seeing him who was invisible. There's a prophetic call to God's people to come out of Egypt and be a holy nation. God called his, the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he called his son Jesus out of Egypt. Matthew tells us that. Jesus went down to Egypt and he came back that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Egypt is a type of the world. It's the place where we're held in bondage until we come to the Passover lamb. So Christian, who are you? This is from our passage this morning who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. That word translated there is the same word that's used of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Enoch was taken 
away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The word here in the New King James that says taken was in the King James is translated. Translated him. The Greek word there, though, for Enoch means taken lying down. But this word here in Colossians, the Greek word, means upright. We're translated from one kingdom into another in, a, in an upright, in a living, into a living kingdom. The Christian is a citizen of God's kingdom. And as a citizen of God's kingdom, he is translated from one kingdom into another. And so when he is translated from one kingdom into another, every aspect of his life goes into that new kingdom. There is nothing that is left in the old kingdom. All things are become new. You take with you your mortal body, but your suffering, your struggles, your challenges, they all become part of God's family. They all become part of who you are as a new creature in Christ. Every aspect of your life comes under that citizenship. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So now we're not just talking about citizens of the kingdom, we're talking about part of the family. A new nation, a new family, but it goes beyond that, a new creation. Turn to our Sunday school text this morning, Colossians 1. This is not where it talks about a new creation. These verses caught my eye this morning and I wanted to read them as well. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. You were enemies, but now you're reconciled. That's verse 21. Verse 22, In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you've been reconciled. You see, that, that reconciliation, the Christian is reconciled back into the communion state with God. A new creation. Adam and Eve were the first creation. Jesus Christ was the second Adam. And you are his brother when you come to know God through him and through the presence of the Spirit dwelling in your life. So, in my slides for this lesson at Bible school, I have some pictures, some before and after photos. Have you ever seen before and after photos? Somebody selling a product that's supposed to make you young again or thin again or something like that. And you have this picture that's before and you have this much nicer looking picture that's after. Well, 
the child of God will have a before and after photo. And I want to give you this to take home and think about. In your mind, what will that look like? What does that look like? What should that look like? For you as a child of God to have a before and after photo. Title of the next message is From the Inside Out. And uh, Lord willing, that'll be on June 26th. And you can read John 3 and John 15 at some point. I'll probably send those passages out later. The Lord bless you as you live as a citizen of God's kingdom, as a child of God, as a new creation.